Welcome to International Affairs, Episode 3. We have a very special guest in the studio here, Jim Olson, former Chief of Counterintelligence at CIA. I'm here with co-host Matt Thomas. We're going to talk about intelligence and why it's an important instrument of statecraft. And we thought there was none other better to bring in than Jim Olson. Thank you for being here, Mr. Olson. It's nice to see you again, Jeremy. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Matt, Matt, good to see you too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Very happy to have you here. So this is meant to be a casual discussion on intelligence and why it's important. It, but if you could tell our listeners maybe a brief synopsis of your career, you spent th- 30 years plus working undercover overseas in clandestine operations, serving us, the American people, and then went on to teach graduate students. Um, so tell us some maybe brief highlights of your career at CIA. I'll be glad to. It's a bit of an unlikely story because I come from a small town in Iowa. International affairs was not something that was on the radar out there. I went to the University of Iowa. I studied mathematics and economics. Then I took a commission to the United States Navy. I served aboard guided missile destroyers and frigates. I really loved the Navy. I thought about staying in. But I wanted to go back home. I wanted to return to Iowa. I left the Navy. I applied for law school at the University of Iowa. I was accepted. And that was my dream at the time. I wanted to get my law degree and practice law in a small county seat town in Iowa. Sounds nice. Find a nice Iowa girl, settle down, raise a family. What I thought then is an ideal place to do that small town, rural America. That sounds wonderful. It was going to be wonderful, but it was not to be. Because in my last year of law school, I received a mysterious phone call out of the blue. And the voice on the phone said, Mr. Olson, we think we have a career opportunity that might be of interest to you. And of course, that was the CIA. They had found me somehow out there. Okay. And that led to a series of secret trips to Washington, meetings in safe houses, interviews, a lot of different kinds of testing, psychological screening like you would not believe. It seemed to go on forever. Background investigation, physicals, uh, and then a whole series of polygraph exams on every, and I mean every, aspect of my background and personal life. It could not have been more intrusive. But somehow I survived all that. Okay. And that led to an offer to serve in the clandestine service, the Director of Operations, which I did. I had the great fortune of meeting my wife, Meredith, at the CIA. We became a husband and wife team. And we did serve together doing espionage and covert action undercover for our country and for the CIA for 31 years. When I say undercover, it means that nobody knew we were in the CIA. Our parents didn't know. Our children didn't know. Our friends didn't know. It was really quite a shock, as you probably remember, when I had to come out from undercover to accept the professorship at the Bush School of Government Public Service. We've been here now for over 20 years. It's been a very rewarding second career. When we were on active duty, we served in Paris, we served in Moscow, we served twice in Vienna. Vienna was a real battleground of espionage during the Cold War. It was great. Loved serving there. Then we ended up our career in Mexico City. But interspersed in that were brief interludes back at headquarters in Langley, where I was at one point chief of Soviet operations, and then at another point I was chief of counterintelligence. It's an amazing career. Um, a, lot of, a lot of foreign assignments, living overseas, 
Uh, and I imagine not easy raising a family in that operational environment, moving and... It was a challenge. That was probably the thing that we thought about most because no matter how many precautions you can take, you cannot 100% guarantee the safety of your family, particularly your children. That was very much on Meredith's in my mind. And there were threats against our family, uh, specifically against the children. So we had to put them under protective watch at times. But that was just part of our life. Right. We didn't know any other life. We felt that we could manage those risks by the training we had, by the backup we had, by the great team that was around us. Of course, Meredith and I reached our own backup. Right. So as a husband and wife team, we always had support right there. That's incredible. Um, it, it's definitely not an easy career, not an easy uh, thing to do to raise the uh, family in that environment. Um, and so it's an excellent uh, time spent serving us, the American people, and then coming to the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University, the premier intelligence school for graduate students looking to study intelligence. And then you, you served there, and that, uh, that's where I had the opportunity of taking some classes from you, which were exceptional. Uh, and I really, uh, really loved my time in your classroom. Mm -hmm. I really did. As did I. <laughs> Um, and so since we have you here, we want to ask, uh, why is intelligence an important part of statecraft and American foreign policy? I think intelligence is more important now for our country than any time in recent memory. The world is really dangerous for America. We have multiple threats. And I... I'm biased a bit, of course, but I happen to think that intelligence is the best hope we have of keeping our country safe. I agree. We are the front line of defense. We are the early warning system. I shudder to think what would have happened to America, particularly in the era of terrorism, if we did not have good intelligence. So there's some very brave people out there now collecting intelligence that is designed to thwart attacks against America to find out what our adversaries are doing. And that is absolutely essential, I think, if we're going to keep the American people safe. Right, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is essential to understand, you know, the, the, intents, the intent and uh, kind of what's the thought process and who's doing what and what's happening and get that information back to our policymakers to make informed decisions on what moves to make next. Can you speak for, uh, for our audience as well, just kind of briefly, you know, how is it done, right? What is, what is generally the process uh, going from case officers to analysts and then on up to uh, policymakers, decision makers? How does that all work uh, to where we get the decision makers the information that they need in order to choose wisely what to do? Well, as you know, Matt, the United States government's intelligence apparatus is vast. Mm -hmm. It's multifaceted. So we have a lot of different techniques for collecting intelligence against our adversaries. I am a human intelligence person. I am a humenter. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to talk about that first. The best source we can have on intelligence is the human source that foreign official 
that terrorist, that foreign intelligence officer who has inside information. Our job in the human side of the CIA was to find those people and to recruit them as sources. And the way we do that is sometimes very sophisticated, sometimes just falls into our lap. We have to find foreigners who are willing to give up their secrets, willing to commit treason, in effect, against their country or to betray their organization in return for some inducement that we provide them. Our job is to identify what that inducement would be to have the highest chance of success. It's often money. Mm -hmm. I love recruitments that just boil down to money because... If someone can be bought, it's just a question of negotiating price. Right. That's the easiest route. <laughs> Those are the easiest ones. Uh, but we also had many foreigners, particularly in my experience against the Russians, who were willing to risk their lives by cooperating secretly with us and the CIA for ideological reasons. They realized that their own system was oppressive, was totalitarian, was cruel to its own people. And they courageously wanted to strike back against that. And they decided in some cases that a good way to do that was by cooperating secretly with the CIA. I had many Russians working for me who were in that category. I had tremendous respect for them. Some were so conscientious that they categorically refused any compensation because in their mind that would taint the purity of their motivation. Those people uh, provided invaluable intelligence uh, for the United States because you have to have a human source to tell you what the intentions are. Somebody who's sitting right there, somebody who's got access to the real documents, to the key lists, to the... Uh, cipher codes and, cipher and all those codes, kinds of things. Everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so nothing's mm -hmm. better than a human source. But we don't rely on human sources only. And the United States government has a network of signals intelligence collectors, mostly done by NSA, but other agencies as well, who are scooping up all the electronic communications around the world. And they're sorting them out to determine what is relevant, what is useful for United States intelligence. That's primarily done by the NSA, as I said, but the military is very involved. CIA is involved, and our law enforcement community is also out there collecting signals intelligence. It is invaluable. I shouldn't give the NSA too much credit, but I'm happy to say that probably more terrorist attacks were thwarted by the United States government because of signals intelligence, because of what the NSA collected. Think about terrorists. They are a very tough nut to crack as far as human recruitment goes. They are fanatical. Mm -hmm. It's religious-based. They are true believers. And they are not going to cooperate with the devil. They're not going to cooperate with us. But terrorists do have two significant vulnerabilities that we can exploit, and we do exploit. One is they have to communicate. And they communicate electronically. And we can find those communications and intercept them and, if necessary, decrypt them. They also have to move money. That's another vulnerability because they often do that electronically as well. And we can intercept those communications. 
Financial intelligence is a rapidly growing area in the United States intelligence community because think about it. If you can get into the bad guys' money flows, whether they're terrorists or foreign intelligence services or narcotics traffickers or organized crime, if you can get into their financial flows, you can bring them down. Mm-hmm. So we realize that now. So we're putting a lot more emphasis on it. We also have mind-boggling imaging capability. The kinds of things that we can see, the kinds of things that we can monitor from the sky have been a very, very important of our overall collection effort. That's done primarily by the National Reconnaissance Office. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is responsible for analyzing all of that product. And it is an essential part of the overall intelligence picture we paint against our adversaries. One of the most exciting developments, in my opinion, that we've seen in the imagery area is the unmanned aerial vehicle. Because they can do things much more cheaply than a satellite can. No risk to any people as you would have in a U-2 or some other reconnaissance aircraft. And they can hover. They can stay in the same place, whereas a satellite cannot. So I'm very, very excited about the future of the UAVs. And they are becoming more and more prominent around the world. We're not only using them, but our adversaries are using them as well. Our job is just to make certain we use them better than they do. And, and we are. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. That kind of brings up a point about um, the Chinese spy balloon. We're going to kind of jump to that uh, because we're talking about UAVs and we're talking about the Chinese spy balloon and that being an unmanned aerial vehicle of some sort and type, right? The Chinese have a sophisticated satellite capability, satellite imaging, um, and there's been a lot of debate in current news about what the intent of that balloon was. Why would they send this balloon? Why did we have trouble tracking the balloon? Uh, Do you have any thoughts to offer on the Chinese spy balloon situation? I sure do. Okay, let's hear them. (laughs) As an intelligence professional, that spy balloon makes no sense whatsoever. Because as a collection platform, and it was a collection platform, both Imint imagery and signals intercepts, it was duplicative over and over again of what they're collecting from their satellites. Satellites is a much more efficient, efficient collector than a slow-moving balloon across our territory. Right. Uh, so it made no sense as an intelligence collector. Anything signals that they picked up would be meaningless. We saw it coming. Right. So we would defend against uh, ensuring that nothing was visible, nothing was being transmitted that would be of any real value to them. So I don't think that we need to worry about a balloon as a collector against the United States. Okay. Satellites, yes. Right. I'm glad we shot the balloon down. So am I. I wish we'd shot it down sooner. Okay. Because it was a provocation. Right. Mm-hmm. Even if it had no real long-term value as an intelligence collector, it's something that we cannot tolerate. Right. They did that's violate ex- our airspace. That's exactly what I was going to ask is, is uh, instead of as an intelligence operation, is this perhaps something that is strictly a, a, a signal, a provocation, something where they're testing the limits of what they can get away with? I think you're right on to it, mm-hmm. to it Matt. Uh, that's how I see it also. It was a probe. It was a test. The Chinese, I think, were very interested in knowing when we would pick it up, how quickly we could scramble jets 
to intercept it, and also politically what our reaction would be. I think they learned a lot from that process. And not Absolutely. All, not all mm -hmm. of it to our benefit. Right. And I'm waiting for any kind of report on our analysis of the recovered debris. Mm -hmm. It will confirm, I'm absolutely certain, that there were receivers on there for signals intelligence, so there were cameras on there. I want to know, though, what kind of cameras, what kind of signals they were looking for, what bandwidths which they were covering. And I'm also interested in knowing how much of that high technology on the, that balloon was American. Exactly. Was based on mm -hmm. a, a how much a how much have they stolen from us? Stolen mm -hmm. American technology. I guarantee mm -hmm. you, was considerable. Mm -hmm. But where's the report? Exactly. You know, Quantico has had the uh, the balloon debris for quite some time. I think we're overdue as the American people to know uh, what was in it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. We had briefly talked uh, last week in episode one about the aggressive foreign policy of China and it becoming ever more aggressive, and also their aggressive intelligence operations. Uh, you have written a brilliant book to catch a spy uh, about counterintelligence. And in here, you talk specifically about China, Russia, and Cuba. Uh, we see in the current intelligence community's threat assessment uh, that China is still top of the list with Russia. Um, can we maybe type some loose ends from Matt and I's uh, last episode about China and maybe get into some counterintelligence uh, how China operates, how they, how they're stealing from us, and then do we have uh, a, maybe a larger problem uh, and need to do better here at home and defending? Yeah, from there, how do we how do we counter it? We have a massive problem. It's unprecedented. As a counterintelligence professional, I can tell you that what China is doing inside the United States today, what its intelligence services are doing, is outrageous. They are overwhelming our defenses. U.S. counterintelligence has not been up to the task. We have to do a much better job against China because we are hemorrhaging our secrets, our technology, our databases to the Chinese. The Chinese are very sophisticated. They're very aggressive. They have virtually unlimited resources to come after us. They use the same techniques against us that we use against our adversaries. They are a strong believer in human intelligence. We can talk more about that later. I've been involved in some recent cases. Okay. But they also do a lot of signals intelligence, but they got all those satellites. They've got a lot of imagery intelligence from the satellites, some 260 are crossing our country every day. 260 That's a lot. Of Russian, or Chinese sat satellites. They are also using uh, cyber attacks. And that's a big concern to all of us because they have been very successful in hacking into not only government databases, but also university databases and uh, high-tech corporation databases they're after anything that is more advanced than what they have. And it covers a wide range of different areas. If they can get better industrial processes, if they can get better aircraft, if they can get better agriculture, if they can get better medicine, they come after us. 
Right. They decided a long time ago that it was a lot faster and cheaper for them in their effort to catch up and surpass America to steal what we have than to do the R&D and the research themselves. And that's exactly what they're basing their game plan on and how they're going to supplant America as the world leader. They have decided they're going to do it through espionage. Yeah. Yeah. Very aggressive. Um, you know, we, we spoke, uh, went kind of through a, a list last week on the episode about some of the Chinese provocations, some of their aggressive policy uh, from Confucius Institutes at universities to the enormous amount of Chinese nationals on student visas coming here. And so it really, uh, your points really kind of shore up that idea that it's uh, being overwhelmed by the sheer number and volume of, uh, of Chinese nationals coming here that are stealing our American secrets and national defense information industrial information and the like. Um, as far as our position or here at home, how do we do a better job of keeping this from happening? We saw, you know, a, a small decline in student visas, Chinese student visas, uh, I think mostly because of COVID over the past several years. Uh, but, you know, Chinese student tuition, uh, research dollars, and Chinese willingness to pay large sums of money to our, some of our researchers and professors at these top-tier universities. And that's a, a major problem. And I kind of alluded to American campuses being a hotbed of this Chinese recruitment and theft last week. And so what do we need to do better? Is it, do we need to hire more intelligence the agents with the FBI to work this counterintelligence mission? Do we need to do a better job vetting Chinese students that are applying for visas? Uh, how, do we, how do we do a better job? I think all of the above. Certainly we need more re recruits for the counterintelligence community. The FBI needs to devote more of its resources to the counterintelligence target in China, number one. The CIA needs to have uh, a larger and uh, more robust counterintelligence capability. The military services need to do the same thing. Across the U.S. counterintelligence community, we need reinforcements. We need some of our best young men and women to step forward to do this very difficult task of counterintelligence. Yeah. I found it very rewarding. I loved every minute of it, but it's not easy. And it can be very discouraging because it takes a lot of patience. It takes uh, a lot of dedication, a willingness to butt your head up against some of the smartest people in foreign intelligence services. And our job is to win. Right. And we can win. But I'm glad you raised the subject of college campuses, Jeremy, because the United States University campus has become a major venue of Chinese espionage. They do it through relationships they develop with professors, people who are involved in cutting edge research, but they also use the flow of Chinese graduate students in the United States. Last time I looked, there were about 400,000 Chinese graduate students on American college campuses. 
And where are they focused? In colleges of engineering. And what are their disciplines in the colleges of engineering? Those that have military applications. Right. So they are looking at electrical engineers, aeronautical engineers, uh, computer science engineers across the board. I've just been involved in a case. I was a so-called expert witness in a case that really brings this to light. Okay. A typical operation involved a young Chinese engineer who was recruited by the Ministry of State Security, the Chinese External Intelligence Service, the MSS, as a penetration. He was tasked to come to a university in the United States to study engineering at the graduate level. And that's not hard to do. Okay, yeah. The universities want them. Right. They want them because they pay full fare. Mm -hmm. And they need to fill out their ranks. There's a glaring shortage of American citizens applying to engineering schools. Right. We have a shortage in our country of qualified engineers. When they come to the United States to study as a Chinese national, when they graduate, they can enter the job market. And they get jobs because the American corporations that need engineers go to the top engineering schools. What do they find? My Chinese. Right. So they hire them. And they gives the Chinese engineer a green card. He's got sponsorship. Mm -hmm. He's got permanent resident alien status. He's on the way to citizenship. Five years of PRA status, he is eligible for citizenship. Okay. And here's the ringer. Five years of citizenship, he's eligible for a top secret code word U.S. government security clearance. It takes some patience. But if you're constantly feeding that chain, you're always going to have people coming out the other end right. with U.S. citizenship. The case I was involved in was a Chinese graduate student who made no bones about it uh, in his private conversations with his Chinese handlers that he accepted the tasking that he was provided. Stay in the United States. Get citizenship. And get employed by the CIA, by the FBI, by Boeing, by General Dynamics, some high-tech company. Because once you are there and you have citizenship and you have a top-secret security clearance, just think of the benefit that will be for Mother China. All right. That's how it works. And we only are catching the tip of the iceberg. Okay. In fact, I call these people like this case in Chicago where I testified, co-optees. They're not MSS staff officers. They're just Chinese who have been recruited and trained and dispatched to the United States with a specific mission to perform. Sure. That, now, this strength in numbers, um, this kind of gets to an issue of the Chinese system being very coercive. And if you have any familial ties back home, uh, significant pressures put on your family at home under threat of imprisonment or uh, the worse life if you don't cooperate. So this co-optee in this specific case, how do we combat other than sheer expert counterintelligence here at home with properly staffed intelligence squads? Is there a way to counter that, that, 
tie back to their families back home in China. It's very, very difficult. We cannot do any real meaningful vetting of the people applying for student visas coming to the United States. Every once in a while, we catch one that has concealed his affiliation with the People's Liberation Army. They are actual army officers who are sent out here as cover as students uh -huh. to infiltrate our high-tech community. We need to be, I think, a much more careful about letting these Chinese students in in the first place. And that's going to run counter to the universities. They don't want to hear about that. All right. Uh, they think it's unfair to their students. They don't want them to be subject to that kind of scrutiny when they get here. Sure. So the cooperation that we get from universities could be improved, quite frankly. Okay. Uh, they want to, they're very protective of these students. And to be fair, what percentage are actual intelligence operatives? Probably small. All right. Of the 400,000, how many are actual spies or future spies? Probably, let's say, maybe 1%. Okay. But that's still a lot. Right. And the Chinese publicize the fact that 90% of their students go back to China after they complete their education. That's fine. But 10% of 400,000 is a lot. Right, too many. That's right. And they are, in fact, uh, heading out into jobs with access. And the ethnic connection is very, very powerful. I get in trouble for saying this, but the truth is that the Chinese intelligence services play the ethnic card. All right. Very, very heavily. Not exclusively. Okay. Because we've seen examples of non-ethnic Chinese who have been recruited by the Chinese intelligence because they're becoming more and more brazen, more and more aggressive. But their first place that they're looking for in spotting potential recruits are Chinese Americans. People who already have the citizenship. People who are already working in the high-tech companies. That's where they go. And ideally, they will have family members back in China that can be used for leverage. But it's not even necessary because in many cases, these Chinese Americans have some kind of lingering loyalty and affection for China. They're culturally connected. They speak the same language. They're proud of the achievements of Mao and his successors. And so they quite often are willing to cooperate once they're approached just out of what they see as misguided patriotism. Okay. Okay. Well, we have to be aware of that fact. And the FBI recently had uh, an incident that reflects that. The FBI came up with a very fine initiative called the China Initiative, where they recognized what the Chinese intelligence services were doing, how they were targeting ethnic Chinese. And so they factored that into their counterintelligence efforts. They had to cancel that program. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There was some pushback, wasn't there? Was there was pushback from the universities okay. who said, you are racially profiling Chinese. I'm sorry, but as a counterintelligence professional, yes, right. because I recognize the counterintelligence truth, the reality. That's how they operate. And there's no way not to. No, of course not. How can I ignore that? Right. Mm -hmm. it's, you, it's, it's like the silliness at airports where you randomly are screening people, taking them in secondary, you know, including the grandmother from Minnesota 
I get that one a lot. I, I think people say, oh, he looks like he's not going to bother us. <laughs> yeah. I get picked. <laughs> so it's our, it's our cultural sensitivity, our racial insensitivity, which is not a bad thing necessarily, but it does affect the ability to do good counterintelligence. And you can see how it plays a role in, in China's messaging to the world abroad as well in its propaganda efforts and say, see, America's racist. See, yes. we're, we're uh, you know, this, this evil, evil country over here. You don't want to be like them. You want to be like us right. instead. Right? But you know where I'm going with this, Matt, mm-hmm. and uh, Jeremy, because you're, you're former students. I think U.S. counterintelligence needs to be much more aggressive. Yes. And to catch a spy, mm-hmm. I list what I call the Ten Commandments of Counterintelligence. Yes. Uh, please walk us through this <laughs> and, and what we can practically do. Well, I'm thinking of that because my first commandment of counterintelligence, how we can do a better job, is be offensive. Counterintelligence fails if it's defensive, if it's passive, if it's sitting back, if it's relying on fences and Locks, that kind of thing. Watchmen, no. You've got to take it to them. You've got to hit them. And the way you hit them is by recruiting them. The best counterintelligence, both know this, is penetration. Mm-hmm. It's recruiting that foreign intelligence officer. Because every American trader, every American who's sold out to a foreign intelligence service is being, ha- being handled by that service. There are people in that service who know their identities or who know some of the product that's being provided, giving us some kind of lead to identify who these people are. But nothing better than recruiting foreign intelligence officers, and we're not doing it well enough. We're not being nearly as aggressive. In my book, I say we need to what I call hang out the shingle. We got to go after them. We got to get in their face. We got to get obnoxious if necessary. We got to do some more cold pitches. You never know when one's going to hit. We're not recruiting enough now. We need to do more. And why is that? Is this uh, a function of of domestic political infighting that bleeds through to what's being passed to the FBI and to CIA? tying their hands in certain cases on what they're able to do, the American public's willingness to allow lawmakers to change laws. Why are we not um, able to fight harder? The reasons you mentioned. Okay. There's a political component to it. There's a diplomatic component to it. Foreign countries don't like to have their officials, whether they're intelligence officers, diplomats, military officers, approached aggressively by the CIA or the FBI, I say, learn to live with it. Right. That's, that's what we're going to do. It's our responsibility to go out and to stop what's going on by recruiting your personnel. Right. And uh, if you don't like it, then stop it. Right. Don't do it. The FBI, just in the last few days, you probably have seen it, has launched a new initiative. And I applaud it. Because they have gone to the internet, they've gone to the social media, and they are exactly doing what I have advocated from uh, the time I published this book, and even earlier, hanging out the shingle. You should find those ads, because they are in Russian, and they're saying, on the 
first anniversary of the Ukraine war. There are probably some of you who are very disturbed by what your country is doing against your brother and sister Slavs in Ukraine. Your future depends on a healthy Russia. That is not guaranteed. Russia is being destroyed by what's happening. Consider your future. If you are a Russian official who has access to secret information, access to classified information, we can assist you in planning a good future for yourself. And then they have a phone number. Excellent. It's excellent, but it's in their face. Good. Mm -hmm. It's going after them. Uh, the Russians are going to be furious, but the timing could not be better because the FBI is reading the mood of the country correctly. I can guarantee you there are some really good Russians out there, people with hearts, people who are conscientious about human uh, rights, who are absolutely appalled and ashamed at what their country is doing in Ukraine. There is secret opposition to Putin and what he's doing to the country. And so this is a time when there are people out there who are disillusioned. I'm looking at SVR officers. I'm looking at GRU officers. I'm looking at military officers. I'm looking at diplomats. And I can guarantee you that ad's going to work. Right. One reason that Russians who have been disaffected have not come forward in the past, because they didn't know how to do it safely. Because they're risking their lives by coming to us. Absolutely. But by the FBI's giving them a secure channel to reach out to us, they're going to get a lot of a positive response. I guarantee you. I, th I, I told my FBI colleagues, your problem is going to be uh, separating the wheat from the chaff because you're going to, you're going to have to set, set the threshold very high and accept only those who really have the keys to the kingdom, right. who have the really good stuff. And by good stuff, what do I want? First of all, I want the identity of American traders. I hope that there's a secondary effect to this advertising campaign that the FBI is okay. undertaking now, and that is that American traders who are out there right now, they're on, who they're, on countries, they're shaking in their boots because they're thinking, okay, how many people in the SVR, how many people in the MSS know my identity or know what I'm doing for you? And what if one of them goes forward? I'm dead. Right. And our hope is, is that, that this appeal will not be limited to Russians because Chinese rep read websites also. Mm -hmm. And they can decipher the Russian. Some point I want to do it to the Chinese as well. Right. We should in, be. In Chinese. Mm -hmm. But can you imagine the diplomatic uh, screaming that would take place? Sure. Because one of the problems we have with the Chinese target is they're being coddled. There is a reluctance on the part of both parties to call them out for what they're doing. They get a pass. Uh, they're stealing our technology. When we catch them, slap on the wrist. But it doesn't really affect the long-term relationship. And there are some people who are very protective of the Chinese relationship because they own so much of our debt, for starters. Right. And secondly, we Americans have an insatiable appetite for cheap Chinese products. We don't mm -hmm. want that cut off. A recent president who tried to impose tariffs as kind of a penalty on the Chinese for what they're doing really got criticized right. because mm -hmm. that's going to raise the price. Right. 
uh, it's going to raise the price at Walmart. It's going to raise the price at practically any store that you can think of. My wife and I kind of quixotically decided at one point that we were going to try to avoid purchasing anything made in China. Right, yeah. Try it sometime. You can't do it. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> what do we manufacture anymore? You go to a store and practically everything you see, if you look on the bottom, made in China. Right. So. Yeah. Last week, um, I spoke about how I was irritated. My COVID test, I had over Christmas had COVID and I open up the package and it's got a certificate. It's manufactured in China. Yes. Um, so yeah, China is a significant threat. And uh, you spoke a little bit about Russia, these ads from the FBI and how it's a prime time to attempt to recruit Russian uh, citizens with access. Uh, can you speak a little bit about the current Russian threat to American security and how that plays into our counterintelligence even further, as opposed to both the Chinese and the Russians are a significant problem. They're number one and two on the lists. Uh, how is Russia operating against the United States here at home? First of all, the level of Russian espionage in the United States is as higher and higher than it ever was during the Cold War. Vladimir Putin is obsessed with America. Mm-hmm. And he is sending large numbers of intelligence operatives into the United States. They are very aggressively involved in espionage and covert action inside our borders. Overseas, Putin is a major threat to the stability of uh, Europe and the world in large because he's a megalomaniac. He is motivated to recreate the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. And he's doing that by acquiring additional territory and populating the Russian homeland. Look what he did in Chechnya. Look what he did in Syria and is still doing in Syria. Look what he did in Georgia, Mm -hmm. Crimea, and now Ukraine as a whole. Mm -hmm. The man is a monster. He has absolutely no respect for human rights, for international law, for national sovereignty. And it has been remarkable how badly he miscalculated and how poorly his war in Ukraine is going for him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. We have, uh, we have audio of, of Russian officers saying, it's a bardak, it's a, <laughs> it's a complete disaster. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, Putin had a game plan which was quite ambitious, typical of him. He was going to invade Ukraine from the south, from the east, from the north, Mm -hmm. quickly capture Kiev, Mm -hmm. either arrest or force into exile or kill Zelensky, and establish a puppet government there. And then he would have in Ukraine the same thing that he already has in Belarus, Mm -hmm. Lukashenko, a puppet. Exactly. It didn't work, did it? No, (laughs) not at all. He did not foresee the fierce resistance that he was going to get from the Ukrainian people or from the Ukrainian military. He totally underestimated Zelensky. He did not think that he would transform himself into this dynamic, inspirational wartime leader that he has become. And he also, fatally, I believe, uh, underestimated the capabilities of his own forces. Mm-hmm. Those Russian troops 
were poorly equipped, poorly led, had very low morale, logistics failed. Uh, it's been a disaster on a military standpoint. I can guarantee you the Pentagon, there are major revisions of our estimates of Russian military readiness and capabilities. Mm -hmm. One thing I always harp about in, in my writing and, uh, and even when I'm teaching my students, when they ask me questions about what's going on, I say, don't underestimate Russia, but don't overestimate them either. They're always... Yes, we've certainly been guilty of that in the past, haven't mm -hmm. we? Yeah. Uh -huh. They usually look stronger than they really are and sometimes look weaker than they really are. <laughs> well, they certainly look weak now. Exactly. Yeah. Another miscalculation uh, by Putin was the extent to which the West would be united and the extent to which NATO would rise to the occasion. It's ironic, isn't it, that one of the reasons that Putin evaded Ukraine was to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. Mm -hmm. What he's done in the process is to strengthen NATO, mm -hmm. to solidify NATO. We've never been more united in the last 20 years in NATO than we are right now. And he did that. Mm -hmm. And NATO has stepped up. I think the United States was a little bit slow to get started. Yes. But we've caught up. And we are now giving the Ukrainians the kind of military hardware that will allow them not only to defend themselves, but actually to defeat the Russians militarily. It's been remarkable to see how effective they've been. They're actually pushing the Russians back. We can't be too mm -hmm. optimistic because Russia still has tremendous capabilities. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that Bakhmut now and other places. They're pushing back. And I think that Putin is most likely planning a major spring offensive that just makes sense militarily. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I personally believe that we in the West, in NATO, and in the United States, must continue mm -hmm. to supply the Ukrainians with the military hardware that they need to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see the Europeans do even more mm -hmm. than they have. Yes. But uh, we should sh show the leadership that we have more recently. Mm -hmm. um, we're giving them things now that we should have given to them a long time ago. Yes, it's been a long time coming, but finally we're starting sure. to pick things up. The HEMARS mm -hmm. were a major step forward, and I think if we give them uh, even more offensive capabilities, including aircraft, we can turn the tide. Mm -hmm. All of that said, this war is potentially going to go on for a long, long time. Yes, Cause I Pu agree. Putin mm -hmm. will never accept defeat. Mm -hmm. He will never negotiate in good faith. So here's my prediction. Mm -hmm. That the war will end because Putin will end. Mm -hmm. I believe that Vladimir Putin will be taken out. I believe that there are good Russians in his inner circle, in the military, in the intelligence services, among the oligarchs, who are reaching the conclusion that enough is enough. He is destroying our country. And look what he's doing to the Ukrainian people. Mm -hmm. He is guilty of war crimes. Mm -hmm. And look what he's doing to our own people. Russian boys are coming back to their villages in coffins and body bags. He is bleeding Russia. 
Mm-hmm. Which we, already has a demographic crisis as it is anyway. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We don't even have good numbers because the Russians won't provide those numbers, but we do a pretty good job mm-hmm. of estimating them. And the last figure that I saw as a, I think, perhaps even conservative estimate is that in the one year of the war in Ukraine, a little over a year now, they've lost 25 casualties, deaths. And compare that to the 10 years of the war in Afghanistan from 79 to 89, when they lost a total of 15,000, which was considered disastrous. How much longer can the Russian military leaders, how much longer can the Russian population accept those kinds of losses? There will be, there will be a limit. I see it almost graphically because when I look at Vladimir Putin today, mm-hmm. I see a dead man walking. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to do it. And do I you hope, think, and I hope sooner rather than later. Do you think there's anybody to replace him that's any better than him? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm probably optimistic, but I believe that the people who are motivated to eliminate Putin for the good of Russia are Russian patriots. They want to see their country restored to the community of nations. They want to see a return to real democracy in Russia. I think their motives will be good. I don't think it's going to be just another dictator, another tyrant who takes over. I believe that the people who will be doing this will be doing it for the right reasons, for the overall good of Russia. I even anticipate that when the new government, the new post-Putin regime is established, the Russians will assist in the reconstruction of Ukraine. They're going to Mariupol mm-hmm. and help rebuild it. The West will also. But I hope that's not pie in the sky, but that's the way I see it. Mm-hmm. But I, I would bet anything that Putin will not survive Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That's how the war will end. The reason I want it to be sooner rather than later is because Putin is a man who's never known defeat. He's never known humiliation. And psychologically, I don't believe he can tolerate that. Okay. And when he sees that he's on the verge of defeat, and he is in a no-win situation, he is capable, out of vengeance, of striking back and wreaking unthinkable destruction on Ukrainian cities, on the Ukrainian population, out of spite. He could think, okay, I'm going out, but I'm going to take them with me. They're not going to have a peaceful transition. And, and certainly... He could use, he could use, I don't put it past this man, either a dirty bomb, or even as he threatened a, an actual nuclear weapon. Right. Escalate to de-escalate. And, and for a man for whom the Cold War never really ended, his, his desperation would certainly be, would be very high. How do we then um, both exploit that and counter the measures that he's going to take? Exploiting it is very, very touchy. We don't want to get involved in that. We don't want to be in any way an instigator of an assassination. Just let nature take its course. Mm -hmm. Let the dynamic that we see in Russia, in the people around Putin, work to our our benefit. They'll step up and do it. Mm -hmm. 
Russians have a history of taking care of evil mm-hmm. or any opposition. I think it's going to happen here. Tyrants, we know historically, tend to die violent deaths. Mm-hmm. I don't think Putin will be an exception. That's incredible. Um, and yes, I hope it also happens sooner rather than later. Um, the lives that could be saved from that. Yeah, it's a very sad and difficult situation. Um, if we could kind of spin into uh, some of the uh, brief comments from you, maybe on this current FBI, or not current, former FBI special agent in charge, counterintelligence in New York City for the FBI, was just uh, arrested and was working with Russian oligarchs that have been sanctioned. And so... Uh, do you think there are any ad- additional ties to Russian intelligence? Uh, if he's willing to, he holds the keys of our counterintelligence operation uh, in a sense, and he's in bed with these sanctioned Russian oligarchs. And he knows he's in violation of U.S. law. Does that call into further question some additional uh, motives of his or uh, intentions that he may have had and kind of what's the damage control process for something like that? First, he's a despicable human being for betraying our country from within the FBI. As far as I can unravel it, his motivation was purely financial. He did it for the money. The oligarchs had a stake in knowing what the FBI was doing against them because they are involved in criminal activity. And Russia as a whole would have a stake in knowing what the FBI is doing in terms of counterintelligence. He sold out. The extent that the Russian intelligence services were involved, I think, is still unknown. But the oligarchs do not operate in a vacuum. And so you have to know that the SVR is embedded with the oligarchs. Right. So anything that this traitor in the FBI was passing to his oligarch sponsors would fall into the SVR's hands. I'm I'm confident. Okay. And so the extent of the damage to our security is not limited to some people who are in the business sphere, but it uh, encompasses uh, our security as a whole. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that uh, he is despicable and it's... uh it's beyond me all of everything that comes out in the news about whether it be somebody in bed with the Russians or the Chinese seems like uh, too much is happening. Of course, we don't always hear about the intelligence wins uh, or failures, but uh, too much is in the news about people willing to accept money to betray their country on behalf of the Russians or the Chinese. It's uh, is an epidemic. Uh, the sad fact is, is that Americans, in too many cases, can be bought. Their motivation is almost exclusively financial. They sell out for money. And it's hit us in the CIA as well as the FBI. It's impacting us all around the world. As CIA officer Jerry Chunching Lee revealed to the Chinese the identity of some of our Chinese recruits 
who, of course, was subjected to fierce punishments as a result. I kind of call him the Chinese Rick Ames, Mulder James, who did this similar thing. Mm -hmm. They both wiped us out, out of greed. They gave the Russians in Ames' case and the Chinese in Jerry Chunching Lee's case the identities of those courageous Russians and Chinese who were working secretly for us, providing valuable intelligence from inside and condemning them to death. Absolute treason. But absolute treason. But they are unfortunately the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. I believe that we have no idea the extent of which we are being penetrated by the Russians and the Chinese. Mm-hmm. And it keeps me up at night. It torments me. It should torment any current or future counterintelligence person. The people who are out there now that we don't know about. I'd love to get back in the game. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'd like to be back in the hunt. What could be more rewarding than to tracking down and to bring you to justice? these people who are doing so much harm to our country. Sure. They're yeah. doing it for such a venal motive as, as money. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I would love to have you back in the game. Um, you know, I don't want to, I guess, you know, current uh, rank and file CIA intelligence officers and FBI agents are doing their absolute best with what they're given. Uh, and so, you know, it, it comes down to which you speak to some in your book, fair play, kind of this moral continuum of what the American people are willing to accept and how that gets uh, passed into law and what lawmakers are willing to uh, do to help combat these issues. Uh, and, you know, after 9-11, we saw everybody was much more willing, the American people much more willing to go and fight and fight hard and give some additional authorities and do some extra things uh, kind of on that continuum of morality. And then as the the war on terror starts to um, slow down a little bit, then we have, you know, these major foreign players, Russia, Ukraine, uh, and China that are really stepping up and becoming even more emboldened, more aggressive. Do you think we'll get to a point to where the American people understand and are fed up with these these intelligence operations and the aggressive action of China and Russia here at home. I'm hoping that will be the case. I believe that the American people have no idea of the extent of what's going on out there. The purpose of my books was to educate them to some extent on the reality of what we're facing out there. It's awful. And we're losing. And I don't like to lose. I don't either. That's good. And unfortunately, our adversaries are able to mount attacks against us that we don't even know about. We need to do a much better job. The second prong of my offensive approach to counterintelligence, in addition to recruiting them aggressively, is double agentry. And as you see, I pay a lot of attention to double agents in my book because I love double agents. If I were in charge of CIA counterintelligence again, I would be flooding 
the Chinese with double agents. I want to make them gun shy. I want them to believe that the next American they think they've recruited could be ours, could be run against them. Another case that I testified in was a Cincinnati case where the Chinese were trying to steal jet engine technology from GE Aviation in Cincinnati. They did that very aggressively. And we were able to lure through a brilliant FBI double agent operation, the MSS case officer, to a meeting with our double agent in Brussels. And we had front-ended that operation with the, with the Belgians. Thank you, CIA. And the Belgians snatched the Chinese intelligence officer, a staff MSS officer, and arrest him and extradite him to the United States and put him on trial. We convicted him. 20 years. And that is the first time ever in our history that we've been able to put a staff MSS officer in an American prison. It's a warning shot against the bow of the Chinese that U.S. counterintelligence is very devious, very aggressive, and we're coming after you. The Chinese don't like to operate inside the United States unless they have diplomatic immunity. They have lots of spies in our country, MSS officers and PLA officers, who are operating out of their embassy, out of their consulates, out of the United Nations, who have diplomatic immunity. So if they get caught spying, the worst that's going to happen is that they're going to be declared persona non grata. Right. But in this case in Belgium, that person did not have diplomatic immunity. And so is susceptible to the four, full force and fury of U.S. laws. A beautiful, beautiful result. Excellent. One that uh, made all of us extremely happy because it's the first time ever. We made some counterintelligence history. So in Chicago, we put in prison a co-optee, an MSS co-optee. And in Cincinnati, we put in prison an actual MSS staff officer. That's, that's awesome. So uh, double agent operations work and can be fruitful and should be used more. Fruitful doesn't even begin to describe okay. how valuable they are. Uh, in my book, I list all the benefits from a good double agent operation. They are endless. I don't know why we're not doing more. They kind of seem to have fallen out of favor. That's why I was so effusive in my praise of the FBI. I worked with them on that operation. I'm so pleased that they were able to resurrect the old double agent expertise that uh, we used to have in the past. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think we have enough of in, in the present. Okay. They're, they're fun to do. Uh, I believe it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing gets my blood flowing faster than a good juicy double agent operation. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so um, I, I guess kind of trying to wrap up everything that we've discussed and uh, you've hit on it a couple of times, but to the everyday average American citizen, uh, understanding that intelligence is an important part of American foreign policy and it matters to every single American that for national security purposes, for national security purposes. Uh, and, it, and we can boil that down to the economic impact that it has on industry. Um, it, if we could hear from you on why intelligence matters to the everyday American citizen, 
uh, you know, from, and from there, how everyday Americans can help further our our mission in in national security, from the ballot box to proper security measures, and and so on. I think the first step is uh, to be aware of how much America is in peril. A strong China, a confident China, a militaristic China, an expansionist China is going to take on the United States at some point. There's no question about that. Have you seen the figures on the defense spending in China? I have not. It's going up 7% this year. Okay. Compared to our, what, 2.5%? Mm-hmm. We're still ahead of them in military expenditures. But that's a significant statement from China is the direction they're heading. They will go after Taiwan. And a weak America, or a perceived weak America, is emboldening our adversaries. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that Putin's decision to move against Ukraine was a direct result of what he saw in the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Absolutely. And greenlighting Nord Stream 2, among other things. Exactly. Mm-hmm. In those operations, they saw an indecisive America. They saw a weak America. They saw a disorganized America. They saw an America that could not be relied upon. Mm-hmm. An America that would betray its friends. It was heartbreaking to see what was happening in our withdrawal from Afghanistan. To know that the country that I serve, the country that we all love, would abandon so many fine Afghanistan nationals who put their lives in our hands, needed our protection. Right. And we left them uh, to their own devices. It was outrageous. I am ashamed of what happened out there. And I'm particularly ashamed because it didn't have to happen. Mm-hmm. We had the intelligence. We had the time. We had the capability for an honorable withdrawal and to save the lives of those Afghani nationals who were at risk. And we didn't do it. Right. And the reason we didn't do it I won't overly speculate, but I think the motives were beneath our dignity. I think we are better than that, and particularly to let any kind of political consideration get into the timetable of what we did in Afghanistan. The Chinese watched that also. Right. They saw the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, They saw how we responded so feebly to the balloon. Right. Mm They see a lot of things around the world that encourage them that the trend lines are moving in their directions. Mm -hmm. They see an America in decline. And that's awful. That is awful. It is awful. We're the greatest, most powerful country in the world, but we need to stay that way. Unless the people decide that we will put the resources and the commitment and the policies in place that keep us strong, then we are at risk of losing it all. I cannot be anything but pessimistic about the trend that I'm seeing now, the direction of our country, not only in counterintelligence, but in our whole approach to international affairs and national security. I wish it weren't true, 
but uh, I'm being very honest here. I despair for the future of our country. Mm-hmm. I agree, and I, I wish I could say I didn't, but uh, but I I see the same things that you're seeing, and you know we're signaling our weakness um, and our indecisiveness and yeah. our our willingness to play politics instead sure. of safety and security and right. <clears throat> yeah, and I think it's compounded by some of the things that we're seeing in society, the permissiveness, mm-hmm. uh, some some moral decay, in my opinion. Absolutely, and. Uh, that all goes together, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It all does. It, it, it ties together um, and it really starts to seep into you know, all of our institutions and the way we uh, make law and enforce law and the way we conduct our foreign policy overseas. So it's extremely critical. It's an extremely critical issue that uh, we can do a better job. We can do things here at home to see American people to change course. And that's what we need to do. It doesn't have to end this way. Good. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't have to be Israel in the face of Nebuchadnezzar's <laughs> army. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, we don't have to be the Roman empire. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really want to thank you for your time and coming in to talk to us about international affairs and specifically intelligence, how that's an important instrument of statecraft some of what China's doing with their aggressive foreign policy and espionage along with Russia. Um, You have, again, written two wonderful books, To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence, James Olson. Uh, This is an excellent, excellent book that's used in teachings all throughout our country and intelligence agencies. New recruits are reading this to understand intelligence more. Uh, We are actually going to be giving away five signed copies of this book signed by Jim Olson and you have a chance to win those. Uh, we're going to do a random giveaway on our, on our channel. So please like, and subscribe and share this for your chance to win to catch a spy signed by Jim Olson. And then his other book, fair play, the moral dilemmas of spying is an excellent read. It has a bunch of hypothetical case studies and scenarios related to human intelligence operations and talks a little bit about that uh, appetite for the American people, what we're willing to accept, what's moral, what's not moral. As we know, the intelligence community is extremely capable of doing a lot of things. It just simply comes down to what we're willing to accept here at home as the American people, what we want our country to be known for and what we stand on. Those are two great books uh, by Jim Wilson. Uh, And so, I want to say thank you for coming in. Is there anything last thing you'd like to say uh, or discuss or talk about before? Yes. Okay. Let's hear it. Let's I'd go. Like, I'd like to say how proud I am of two of my graduates uh, from the Bush Schools program, Jeremy and Matt. Thank you. Uh, you're you're both uh, doing fine work. You care about this country, and I welcome the opportunity to talk about our country and its future. I have a passion for the safety of the American people. And I hope that your audience uh, picked up some useful points here today and uh, will take seriously the great danger that our country's in today. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much. Um, Your opinion is highly, highly valued, and we appreciate you. And that's going to end it for Episode 3 of International Affairs with Jim Olson, and we'll see you guys next week.